0: book of ruth after taking a week off last week so chandler could show, share with us uh we're going to be back in the book of ruth chapter three as i said probably my favorite chapter uh favorite episode in this story if you want to kind of continue what we started the way i started talking about it uh a few weeks ago kind of like a tv series that we're going through this is episode three and uh Man, there's, there's so much in this chapter that, that makes me love it. It is packed with all kinds of tension, it is packed with scandal, it is packed with beauty, uh, and it's also packed with a lot of super questionable moments that kind of make you, uh, at least make me, whenever I read it, kind of scratch my head just a little bit and say, I don't know about that, I'm not sure that was the right way to go about that. And it kind of challenges a little bit of, how we read scripture and how we're supposed to look at the book of Ruth and how we're supposed to uh, cover some of this stuff. So real quick, just a, a reset of uh, of where we're at here. Uh, Naomi and Ruth, two widowed women, mother-in-law, daughter-in-law, they've made it back to Naomi's hometown, Bethlehem, which is kind of your first foreshadowing of where we're going to go next week, but back to their hometown of Bethlehem. Uh, and once they're there, they have to make ends meet and they have to find some food. So Ruth has gone out to take advantage of what is basically the social welfare system for Israel at this time. She's gone out to glean the edges of the field. This was set up where, uh, where, where uh, widows or, or those that were just hard up for food, they would go around the edges of uh, the fields of those that abided by uh, the, the law that was set up, the Mosaic law that was set up, and they'd go around the edges of the field and they would take some of the extra grain that was left, kind of 5 or 10 percent that the harvesters intentionally did not, uh, did, not, uh, did not glean, did not take in, but left it out and they would kind of leave some behind as they went throughout the fields. They didn't, they didn't mind to pick, to pick up every little bit, but instead they would leave some behind. And So Ruth is going through and she's picking all that up. She's working hard on behalf of her mother-in-law, uh, Naomi. She is, she is doing right by her. She is doing the good thing. And, uh, and what we said is that it just so happened that she picked the field of a man named Boaz. And Boaz shows up, he takes notice of this lady out in the field, Ruth, he's never seen her before, immediately he brings her in, uh, he gives her a ton of grain to take home, uh, he moves her to a safer, more productive position alongside his workers. Um, he, he is everything that you want uh, in, a, 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 in a guy. He, he does everything that, that you want to do, it also just so happens that he's rich, it also just so happens that he's single. And she just so happened to show up in his field. Uh, and this is kind of where we left last week. Ruth shows back up at home with Naomi, uh, no doubt worried to death of what Ruth has been uh, been exposed to out on her first day in the field. And she shows up with a 50-pound sack of, of barley and grain uh, and says, I made it in this field of this guy named Boaz, and he took great care of me. And we see, we, we kind of ended with a twinkle in Naomi's eye of Boaz. I know that name, Boaz. He is a kinsman, which means nothing to us. And we'll talk a little bit about what it means this week, and we'll talk a lot about what it means next week. And that's where we will pick up in chapter 3 here in just a minute. Before we get there, I want to ask you, I wonder, have you ever received some just plain bad advice? Where somebody has given you some advice, and you have taken it, and it has turned out absolutely terribly for you. Or you've, you've, you've said, you know what, I appreciate the thought, but I'm not going to go that route. And then you've watched whatever would have happened. The advice, uh, the opposite of, of Alanis Morissette, instead of the good advice that you just can't take, and it would have figured. It's the, it's the bad advice that you avoid, and you just say, no, I'm not going to do that. And it turns out, good thing that you didn't. I don't know if you've ever had... Uh, that kind of thing. But I just finished reading a book that has a moment that has to rank up there in the history of really, really, really bad advice. It's a book called Endurance. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys have ever read this or if you've ever heard of this. It's about uh, this guy named Shackleton. He's the captain and his voyage and his goal was to travel to Antarctica uh, to reach Antarctica once he got there about half of his party would leave their ship here the Endurance and they were going to go across uh, Antarctica cross over the South Pole and be the first group the first crew to ever uh, do the the transcontinental trek across Antarctica that was the 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 plan that's how things were supposed to be uh, set up this book is incredible I would encourage you to read it It had me in tears at the end Um, but it's just this story of this this expedition that, as you can imagine, uh, let me also say this happened in 1914. So these guys aren't wearing like North Face gear when they're down there, right? Um, they've, got, they've got all the old stuff and, uh, and, and the, <laughs> the trip to Antarctica wasn't even the bad advice. Like that was just part of it. Uh, the, the, the idea here is that the ship was going to sail down to Argentina and then from uh, Buenos Aires in Argentina, uh it was going to uh the 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 captain shackleton was going to fill out the crew uh there in argentina and then they were going to head down it's about 30 35 guys they were going to head down to antarctica and what was going to happen is they were going to come to one part of antarctica drop off the team that was supposed to make the trek across antarctica uh and then the other crew the rest of the crew would stay on the boat sail around antarctica and pick them up on the other side so this is just like rafting whenever you do like the, the, the tubing down the, the river in the Smokies, but across Antarctica. Um, you just go pick them up on the other side, right? That sounds like a terrible idea, but again, that's not even the, the worst of it. Um, what happened is he got down there, and the bad advice came when Shackleton recruited some guys there in Argentina, uh, and, he, and he picked up two men for the trip to, to go uh, but he didn't want to bring a third guy on the group. You can show, show the picture of this guy. This guy is, is uh, Purse Blackborough is his name. He was 18 at the time, and Shackleton thought he was probably just a little bit too young to make a trek quite like this because he didn't have quite the experience of these polar, uh, polar trips. But the bad advice came when two of the buddies that Shackleton had picked said, you know what, you really need work, you're in a bad spot. Tell you what, we're going to smuggle you onto our boat and then in about three or four days, once we're so far from land that we can't actually turn back and, and bring you back home, uh, we'll, let, we'll, we'll, we'll be like, surprise, We well, we get an extra guy for the crew, um, so what do you think? And he's like, I'm in, let's go, I'm up for an adventure, I need some work. And so that's what he did, he stowed away in a locker for three days, he didn't move for three days, didn't eat, didn't drink, um, and, and stowed away in this locker, and then uh, he, he popped out and was like, all right, I'm here. They, his buddies that helped him on the ship says, all right, come out. And you can imagine the captain is furious. They've only got rations for a certain amount of people. It's been carefully calculated how long the trip's going to take, how much food they have. Uh, and, uh, the captain just tore into him, just let him have it. And then finished knowing that there's no way they could turn back at this point to, to bring him back and said, just know stowaways are the first ones to get eaten if something bad happens. That was the final kind of uh now now get to work, you're part of the crew. That sounded like a joke, but it would actually become a pretty relevant thing because what would follow is probably the most amazing story of survival in history. I know we don't have all of history survival tales and maybe there's some more out there, but I'm telling you what these guys went through was incredible. The ship would very quickly get stuck in ice on their way to Antarctica. Who knew? Who thought ice would be there? Uh, they, they got down there, and what would happen, they would spend well over 400 days, it's like 470-something days, stuck in the ice, floating on the ice in Antarctica. And you can imagine what life would be like down there, and the, the temperatures they would have, the blizzards they would face. They would go months on end with no sunshine because of the way that, how that all works. There would no, be no sunshine there for, for in, the, in the winter for months on end. Um, and I don't want to spoil it for everyone, because I do think you should, should read the book, but I'll, I'll tell you this, it turns out it's 18 months that they are gone on this trek through some of just incredible things that they have to endure. And um, I, don't, I don't want to tell you anything, nobody gets eaten, uh, so, so Blackboro makes it, so the bad advice isn't quite as bad as it could have been, but he doesn't come back home with all of his feet, I'll tell you that much, right? And I can only imagine... Somewhere in that 18 months, whenever it's like negative 40 degrees and the wind is howling, at some point, he's got to be thinking about his two buddies that convinced him to go on this, on, this, uh, on this trek. Like, man, that was some bad advice those guys gave me. At some point, he's got to have a little bit of bit- bitterness towards those guys, right? Like, I cannot believe those guys convinced me to do this. I could be in Argentina right now, like waiting tables. But instead, I'm stuck in Antarctica on a, on a floating ice eating seal brains like and that's where I am for like the next the the next eighteen months. Bad advice that he probably should not have taken. Bad advice to stow away on that ship. And in chapter three, the entire story for the book of Ruth, it may not quite reach this level of bad advice, but the entire story of the book of Ruth and the entire chapter turns on what seems to me like some very bad advice. That Naomi gives to Ruth at the very least it's some very sketchy advice uh, and it makes for a very dramatic episode of our series and will probably make some of you very uncomfortable because uh, I think that's the the point so let's see what happens here in Ruth chapter 3 verse 1 then Naomi her mother-in-law said to her remember so this is after she's come home she's brought the food in uh, and and kind of recognized that she's in Boaz's field Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you? That word rest could also be uh, more of an idea of like a home for you. Should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. All right, so there's a lot to break down there in just those first couple of verses, a lot that gets lost on us because we don't go to the threshing floor very often and we don't Uh, we're not out uh, getting the barley. So we don't understand what all's going on here. So it says in verse 2 that they'll be winnowing barley down on the threshing floor. Uh, And what this means is a couple of things. One, it means we're at the end of harvest. We didn't read it, but the very last verse of chapter 2 says that, uh, that Naomi or that Ruth continued to go to Boaz's field and glean. So we have kind of fast forwarded a couple months in our story. She's kind of spent the summer out there uh, doing all of the the hard work. She's been out there sweating uh, in a better place than she was to start with, but still doing the hard work of of, of bringing in some of the the uh, food. And so we we kind of fast forward a month, maybe two months in the story. She's been around. Um, but as best we can tell, nothing more has advanced in the story past this, and this bothers uh, Naomi. So they're at the end of harvest now. So this means a couple of different things. One, Naomi's kind of feeling pressed for time a little bit because the time in the field is coming to an end, plus their time to get food is coming to an end a little bit. This has been their source of food for several weeks, and now that's going away, and so there's a little bit of concern that comes along with that, but also Naomi sees this as a chance. She sees this as a big, as a big chance. And so they would go to the threshing floor, and the threshing floor would be an area kind of outside of the farm, outside of town just a little bit, not too far, because they don't want to have to haul the grain too far, but it would be a little bit of a ways away, uh, and the the whole purpose was they would take all of the harvest there, and then they would they would grind the grain, and then... However it works, I'm not a farmer, but how it would work is that as they would beat this out, they would throw the grain up in the air. And as they would throw the grain up in the air, the stuff they want to keep would fall down. But the stuff that they didn't want to keep, that would just be the extra stuff that the chaff would blow away because they would be in a place where on top of a hill, likely where the wind would blow stuff away. And so they would just get to the stuff they needed instead of all the extra stuff that they don't want. And this is how they bring all the harvest in. They get it all prepared so that they can have it for. The winner. it's a big time in uh, the wor- the it, it, It's a big time uh, in the world of the farmer, right? Because this is the culmination of all the hard work. This is where they're they're seeing all their hard work come to fruition. It was hard work. It was tiring work, but it was also a bit of a party. When they would go to the threshing floor, the, it, it's a bit of a celebration. Everything that they had done for the year had led up to this moment. And after this moment, they really have a time where they can kind of breathe a little bit and not have a ton of work on the farm. So this is a big celebration. It's also a, a place that's it's known to be a bit of drinking, a bit of partying. Oftentimes there were some other less than moral things that were happening because it was kind of out of the sight of town and out of the sight of others that were around. So this is a big moment. So Ruth and and her time on Boaz's farm is probably about to come to an end. They're partying and they're celebrating there on the threshing floor. And Naomi, the mother-in-law, the classic mother-in-law, goes into full scheming mode here. She goes into a full scheme uh, and, and she is doing everything that she can to try to figure out what is our next step. Now, Naomi has made mention several different times of Boaz being a relative. And Naomi is referencing a long-standing law from the Mosaic Law uh, that that, that is going to be kind of key to what it is that we're trying to do here. And I want to read it, even though it's a little bit long. I want to read it uh, because it's going to influence everything that happens for the rest of this story. So this is Deuteronomy chapter 25. If you want to turn there, you can. It's Deuteronomy chapter 25. And here is the law that Naomi is referencing. She says, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go go into her and take her as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate of the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. And then the elders of a city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up, go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot, and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who did not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him, who had his sandal pulled off. So you don't want to be known as the house who had the sandal pulled off. That's bad news if you are in Israel. That means that you have not done your duty. Now, all that is like super weird to us. All that is like, what is going on here? But the whole point in this is they want to make sure that the family name continues. They want to make sure the family name continues, that there is an heir to inherit the property. So this is all about property rights, and this is all about family legacy, all stuff that's totally lost on us, but super important for a nation that's trying to uh, basically create itself. Super important for a nation that's trying to establish itself and in- establish a line of uh, a line of people uh, coming behind them. Very very important moments. It's a big deal. It's all tied to honor. Uh, it's all tied to, uh, to to family wealth and and making sure that. Uh, that, that land stays within the family, it doesn't get lost so that, so that you don't wind up with you know, 15 guys in Israel that own all the land of Israel. The whole idea is to keep it all spread out and even amongst the land. That was the whole point. But if you, if you read at the very beginning, this is applied to a brother. This is directly applied to a brother. This has nothing to do directly with Boaz. But this law had been, kind of in a weird way, in some ways it had had been relaxed, and in other ways it had been kind of expanded. And so what had happened really at about this time in Israel is that uh, it it wasn't quite the same level of dishonor if you didn't do this. It wasn't quite as drastic as what it says in Deuteronomy 25, not because anybody had said it shouldn't be, just because they didn't enforce it at the same level, right? Uh, But... It had been expanded beyond the brother. And it had been expanded to incorporate other people within the, uh, within the family structure that they could be a part of this and that they should be a part of this. Now, they weren't bound to the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law went out beyond just the brother. And so what Naomi is doing is she is banking that this law is going to be kind of their, uh, their lifeboat. She's banking that if she kind of calls this law out and says, and kind of presents this to Boaz, then Boaz is going to bite. And so, as I said, we'll talk more about this a little bit this morning and a lot next week. But just know that what she's doing is calculated, but it's in no means a guaranteed thing that's going to happen, right? So it's a calculated risk she's taking, but it is absolutely uh, a risk. And so before we get to how this plan goes, I want you to see a couple of different things. We'll see here in just a second how Naomi fully develops the scheme and what she wants Ruth to do. But before we do that, I want you to notice the difference between chapter 1 and chapter 3 with Naomi. In chapter 1, Naomi is in the midst of her grief, and she is moved into bitterness. Right? Do you remember? She says, don't call me Naomi, which means like sweetie pie. Call me Mara, which means bitter she's in the midst of her bitter bitterness if you read in chapter one in the beginning of chapter two all of her comments are about herself and how bad off she is even whenever she suggests that ruth and that orpah go back to moab it's based on the kind of woe is me session of i have nothing to offer you my life is terrible you guys go away Naomi's clear focus in the first two chapters is herself and how bad her circumstances are. Moving to chapter 3, her focus has changed. She says to Ruth in verse 1, Should I not seek rest or not seek a home for you? She's seeing all of Ruth's hard work, and she knows that she needs to care for Ruth the way that Ruth has cared for her. Listen, this is what bitterness and pain can do to us. And it's totally understandable when this happens. So I'm not saying that it's wrong so much as it is something that we need to acknowledge and see. It can turn us in on ourselves and make us to where we can't see anything but pain and suffering and what we've lost. And here what we see in, in chapter 3 is things are starting to change just a little bit. She's no longer looking just at herself. Her, her gaze has changed. She's not focused just on what she can see in her own pain, in her own suffering. Instead, she's looking outside herself. She's starting to see, <clears throat> she's starting to see this break in the clouds that the author uh, of Ruth, that the narrator, has kind of given us hints about, but Naomi's not seen it at all. But she's starting to look outside herself for the first time. She's starting to see the break in the clouds, maybe a glimpse of how God is still at work. Now listen, that was always there. It was always there. She just couldn't see it because of where her focus had shifted. Listen, if that's you this morning, know that God is still at work. That the break in the clouds is there. You just have to keep looking and you just have to keep going. And the more you can get your gaze off of yourself and off of your moment and off of your circumstance and off of your suffering, which again is a natural reaction for us to kind of pull back and pull within, but the more you can get your eyes off of yourself and adjust your gaze to look outwards and to look at what God is doing, the more you'll be able to to kind of pull yourself out of that self-focus and see the work of God. That's what happens here with Naomi. Naomi. She begins to feel the bitterness shift and she begins to look towards others because she can now see what God is doing. No longer is she, is, she, is she Mara. She's Naomi again, looking to serve and to care for others. So next in her story is where we get some super shady advice. I want to read this to you guys and I'm just curious what your all's thoughts would be here. It's Naomi's grand scheme that she has come up with in order to make all well for Ruth. She says in verse three, wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And then Ruth replied, she replied, all that you say, I will do. What in the world is this advice that she has given here? What in the world is this? I'm going to tell you right now. There is zero chance I'm going to give my daughter this advice that Naomi has just given to Ruth. This is not going to happen. It's as sketchy as can be. She wants Ruth, who Boaz has only seen all grimy and gross and sweaty out in the fields, to wash her hair, to find her best dress, to put on some perfume, and to sneak down to the threshing floor after the men had finished their work, eaten their fill, and had a little bit to drink. What makes this doubly sketchy is this is exactly what the prostitutes would do too. They would go down at this time after the partying was over and they would seek out a man. They'd they'd be seen hanging out around the threshing floor just the same. That is crazy advice. She's, She's saying, I want you to go and when he's asleep, lay down at his feet and just see what happens. He'll tell you what to do next. That is not good advice. It's just not. But this is, this is the plan. Naomi wants Ruth to be careful. She's not there to get the attention of just any man. She wants the rich single man. That's the one that she wants to make sure that she gets the attention of. Uh, and he's, uh, he's the one that's kind of at the, the, the center of this scheme. He's the one that everything kind of revolves around. And so she wants her to take careful note of where he lays down and then go lay at his feet. Now there's some debate about this phrase, uncover his feet, and exactly what that means, and is it a euphemism for something else? But the scholars kind of argue about it, but at minimum, what we can say is that she's, she's kind of throwing herself at his feet and saying, I'm yours if you want me. That's basically the, the message that's being communicated. I'm available Uh, And I'm I'm seeking you out. That's that's a minimum what this message means whenever she goes and she does this So the idea here is that she's not leaving anything to chance She's going after boaz Either boaz hasn't decided to act or he's been too like cautious to act but either way Or he's just been too dense and he's not really like seen like oh, hey, I got an opportunity here none of that so they're saying, all right, we've got we to move the plan along because Boaz is not getting the picture here. Um, and so Ruth says, all right, I'm in, I'll do it. And so you can feel the tension building here out of this opening scene, saying, all right, here's what I want you to do. Here's the advice. And everybody says, all right, w- we'll do it. So then we shift scenes and we go to the threshing floor. Let's see how this, this grand scheme plays out for Naomi. Verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry and he went to lie down at the end of a heap of grain, then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Yeah, that might scare you just a little bit. I think that's a funny line that's in there. He's asleep laying on the grain. You can just imagine like fully satisfied, a hard, work is, hard, uh, hard day's work is done, he's eaten his fill, all is well, he goes to sleep and then like he hears a noise and he wakes up, he's like, ah, there's a girl, like that's, that's different for him, right, he's not used to that, that's, that's, a, that's a different kind of a thing, um, and that's, that's what happens, he looks down at her and he says, who are you, all right, so let's just, just stop right there, like this is just a weird place, and what's supposed to happen, do you remember what Naomi told Ruth? She said, go down there, lay down there, and then whenever he sees you, after he gets over the heart attack that you've given him, he'll tell you what to do. He'll tell you what to do. Let him put together the pieces of what is happening, and, he, and, and you just do what he says. That's the safe thing for her to do. But Ruth is not having any of that. She's not going to go through all the trouble of getting all gussied up and, and looking nice and showing up and risking so much here in this moment just to let Boaz miss the moment of what is trying to happen. She's not going to take the chance that Boaz misses what's right in front of him. And so it says, and she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So Ruth just comes right out and says it. First date, and she's already talking about marriage. She just comes out and says, Let's, it's not even a date. Like she just shows up and says, hey, you're going to marry me. How about that? Uh, but there's so much packed into this little phrase here that, that again, gets lost on, her, on us. First, she says, spread your wings over your servant. Now, that word servant is not like slave, which is used earlier in, uh, in the book. This is a word that means more like your, uh, your handmaiden. And a handmaiden wouldn't wouldn't be seen as like a a slave in the house, but instead would be seen as like part of the household. Would have already been considered, at least on some level, part of the family. It's a gentler tone, and it implies that she'd already been welcomed by Boaz before. And we've seen this. But then this spread your wings. uh, It's really an incredible ask that she is making here. Some of y'all may have a a different translation. Somebody have like the NIV say something different? Does spread your garment. So the, the the ESV does something that I, I think is actually super help, helpful here. The, the literal translation is spread your garment. But the, the, the way that the phrase works, you can use that word garment to also mean wings. And so the ESV kind of goes ahead and, and, and does the work of, of translating it into spread your wings um, instead of spread your garment, because that kind of gets lost on us. And this spread your wings is a bit of a play on Words, but Ruth is calling back to chapter 2 and Boaz's prayer on behalf of Ruth. I don't know, do you guys remember this from Ruth chapter 2, verse 12? The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel. This is Boaz talking to Ruth, under whose wings you have come to seek to take refuge. So he's offering a blessing and a prayer on behalf of Ruth saying, be blessed by God under this God whose wings you have come to take refuge. And now she shows up and she says, spread your wing over me and, uh, or the corner of your garment or the wing over me. So in effect, Ruth is coming to Boaz and she's saying this, I'm here to ask you to allow God to make you be the answer to your own prayer for me, Boaz. I'm asking you to be the answer to that prayer. Boaz, I want you to be the one to give me the protection that you prayed God would give me. And here's how you're going to do that, Boaz. You are a redeemer. You have the legal and the, the, the legal responsibility and the right to pursue me. So do it. That's, that's essentially what happens there in that small little phrase. Uh, that, that happens there. The amount of courage this required for Ruth cannot be overstated. So much courage is on display right here in this moment. She had to have a lump in her throat here at this moment when she says this. Even Naomi's scheming and bad advice and like super sketchy stuff that she says to do doesn't go as far as Ruth does, Ruth goes even further. Remember, Ruth is a Moabitess. By all accounts, she's barren. She had been married for 10 years, had no children. She's a widow. She's poor. She offers nothing to Boaz. Nothing to him. If anything, Boaz stands to lose much, because if he were to marry her now, then there, would be, there could be some claims against his land after he died, and his inheritance can get divvied up in some, some different ways. It's a little complicated. Again, we'll, we'll get through that next week with some of the nuts and bolts there. But for now, know this, Boaz has every advantage over Ruth, every advantage, in society, in power, in money, in respectability, all of it. He has every advantage over Ruth. Rich, single, he's on the threshing floor, and she comes and she's presented herself to him. And make no mistake about it, this could have gone very bad for Ruth. She could have been spotted by another man and taken by another man before she, before she got there. Or whenever she presents herself to Boaz, Boaz could have done anything he wanted to at that point. He could have done anything that he wanted. There's nothing that prevents him from having his way with her right there and then sending her back out into the night. No one would have believed her or listened to her, and even if she had said anything, no one would care because she had zero standing in that society, none. She's a woman, a Moabite, a widow. She's poor. She's no good for anyone. I'm telling you, it took incredible courage for her to do this because it could have gone so poorly for her. But she was banking on two things. She was banking on the faithfulness of God and the goodness of Boaz. She was banking on the faithfulness of God and the goodness of Boaz. If either of those two things had failed her in that moment, she would be without hope and in great danger. She bet bet everything on these two truths. And I told you all, the end of the book of Judges, I'm going to keep referring back to reminding you, this is happening in the midst of the Judges. And I'm convinced the book of Judges ends the way that it does. Remember the stories I told you I wasn't even going to read because they were so graphic and so terrible. I'm convinced that it ends that darkly and ends in that way in order to show how amazing what happens next is. So let's see how this gamble plays out here in verse 10. Boaz looks at her and he says, May you be blessed by the Lord, that's capital L-O-R-D. May you be blessed by Yahweh, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. So Ruth has made her bet. She's bet the house. She's come up all sevens. She nailed it. She wins the jackpot here. She's beat the house. Boaz is astounded by what Ruth is doing. She's already known by her character and her kindness for staying with Naomi and not abandoning Naomi. Now she has furthered that even more by seeking a redeemer for Elimelech's family. And let's be clear, I, I, there's all kinds of like love and romance that we want this to be about. And, and I think that some of that is there, but I'll be honest, we have to read that in there. It doesn't say any of that. Um, what we know is that, that Ruth is seeking out something for Elimelech's family and for her dead husband's family. That is the primary thing that we know, at least as the legal tool, the presenting option for why her and Boaz should get married. Now, I like to think that they were, they were you know, he was a good-looking guy, she was a good-looking gal, and they were in love. I like to think all that, but we have to read all that in there. It's not in there. What she's doing now is seeking out uh, uh, a family member so that Elimelech's family name can go on. Not even Boaz's family name, first and foremost, but Elimelech's family name can go on. She could have pursued other men outside of this Redeemer Uh, kind of law, she could have went after other men, but if that had happened and it wasn't a relative, Elimelech's name would have gone away. And so whenever Boaz says, this kindness that you've done that is is greater than the first, what he's saying is, not only have you cared for Naomi, worked hard for Naomi, and and wanted to stay with your mother-in-law, now you work to continue the name of Elimelech by coming to me instead of chasing after any of these other men that you could have had. And so this is a big deal. It is a big deal in what is happening. And he notices, and he calls her a noble woman. The phrase there, worthy woman, is the same phrase that's used in Proverbs 31 to describe a wife of noble character. In fact, some people think that Proverbs 31 is a description of Ruth. That it's talking about Ruth. And some more like oral tradition and some things that were handed down. It would have been just a few generations removed Uh, from her. And so a lot of people think Proverbs 31 is a description of Ruth. So let's keep reading reading, uh, in uh, chapter 3 here. And and, uh, Boaz says, and now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. Well, we have a wrinkle in our plan. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. No Jane Austen story is complete unless there's a plot twist where the two main people don't actually get together, right? This is what this is here. So Boaz says, hang on, if you're going to go this legal route and this is what you're wanting to do, there's a closer relative. He has the legal claim to you. Now that sounds terrible. That's the nature of the patriarchal society that this story is set in. As this episode prepares to close out, we're introduced to our cliffhanger. Ruth wants Boaz, Boaz wants Ruth, but legally speaking, they've got some things standing in their way. There is one that has the rightful claim to her. Boaz just can't accept this proposal. Boaz, Mr. Rule Follower, can't just say, yeah, yeah, let's go, I'm down, let's go find the justice of the peace and make this happen. He can't do that he needs a little more. So let's read let's read the, through the end of this chapter here and then we'll talk a little bit about about this chapter some more. So verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another, and he said, "Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor." And he said, "Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out." And she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her, and then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? You know, she's chomping at the bit. She's got to be so nervous as to what has happened over... The, this, is, this is the morning time now. Like, sun's coming up. Like, what's going on? What has happened? And then she told, me, told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. So he's taking care of the mother-in-law again. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how this matter turns out, for this man will not rest but we'll settle, settle the matter today. In scene, close out the episode. This is how we end with the cliffhanger of does Boaz get the girl or not? Man, I love Boaz. You can see why I would want my son to be named after him. He has everything you want in a man. He is the total package. He looks out for her reputation so that no one would think that she was there to seduce him or that she was a prostitute, even though that might have been why she was there. He doesn't want anybody to think that that's why she was there. And so he says, look, you need to leave while it's still dark. and Nobody will see you or know what has happened. Um, He doesn't want her morals to be questioned because she has a great reputation within the community, which says a ton for somebody who was a Moabite. So he, before, but before she leaves, before she can sneak away, he's got to give her a little bit more food to take back to her mother-in-law. And so he says, bring that dress here, the one you picked out for the special occasion, and you're not going to use it now to attract me, but instead you're going to use it to hold this barley to take back to your mother-in-law. It is such a beautiful chapter. Set against the evil and the wicked darkness of the judges, it shines so bright. Nothing is fully resolved in this chapter. Nothing kind of comes to a close. It does leave us on a bit of a cliffhanger, so maybe your heart doesn't soar like mine does whenever I read this, but I just love Ruth and Boaz here. They represent all the good that you and I should be. It's not often that we get to say that about people in the Bible. Most of the time, people in the Bible were like, oh, yeah, he does all these good things, but he's also a really bad dude, right? We just did this with judges, right? Everything that we saw in the judges, every time we'd be like, oh, yeah, but then there was this. Oh, yeah, but then there was this. Oh, yeah, but this guy was this way. Like, there's always these kind of caveats where it's like, nah, well, you don't exactly want to be like this guy, but not Ruth and Boaz. Ruth and Boaz are the kind of people that we are called to be as Christians, at every turn in the story, we'll, we'll start here with, with Boaz. At every turn in the story, Boaz has an opportunity to use Ruth for his own good and for his own purposes. He could have kicked her out of the fields in chapter 2, but instead he sends her home with a like, dog food sack of, of barley, full, like 50 pounds of food, and he gives her a place in the field where she could maximize her time there and the food that she would get. He honors her at every turn first for her commitment to Naomi and then for her hard work he he prays a blessing over her he doesn't know that chapter away just a few weeks he's going to be asked to be the one that that brings that blessing to her but he prays a blessing over her he honors her he takes care of her he protects her then in chapter three not only does he have the opportunity to to take advantage of her Naomi's scheme has basically given him that option, like very clearly said, this is an option for you, Boaz. And nobody would have thought a thing if he had. But instead, he again uses the opportunity to protect her and to provide for her and to care for her. What could have been all about him, he turned every time to see how he could serve her. What could have been all for him, he turned it to see how he could serve her. Men, this is how you do it. This is it. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is what Boaz is doing. He is giving himself up for her. He's giving up his rights and his position over to Ruth in order to serve her and to care for her. Men, this is the model. This is how you do it. You, see, you don't seek to gain from, from your, your, your wife, your potential wife, women in general. You don't seek to use them for yourself, for your own pleasure, for your own gain, for your own position, and for your own power. You use your position, you use your power, you use whatever it is that you have that God has given you in order to serve and care for them. This is what it is meant to do. This is what Christ has done for us. He used his position, his power, who he was, not in order to, to, uh, to, to, to come and, and reign as a conquering king, but instead to come and die as a suffering servant. Men, this is the way. This is the model. This is what we do. It's not only this, when he's presented with the option to pursue and redeem her, he would have had every right to run to turn around and run the other way. Hey, this is not even our first date. We're already talking marriage. No thanks, not interested. You've got to be a little bit crazy. I'm not going to do that. He had every reason to do that and to dismiss her. Like I said, she brought almost nothing to the table for him. At a time when marriages were far more about business arrangements than about who's in love with who and about how much a wife can bring to a family, Ruth offered very little. But Boaz doesn't run from her. But he agrees that he will do what it takes to pursue her. It's just beautiful. And then Ruth, at every moment of the story, she could have given up. She probably should have given up. She should have ran away. She should have shrunk back. She should have just quit. She had more than enough excuses for it. Not only did she have excuses for it, at one point she has her, her mother-in-law saying, just do it, just go. Just go. I offer you nothing, just go away. But she refuses to play the victim. She refuses to go back to her old gods. Instead, she pursues Yahweh. She pursues Yahweh and somehow, and I'm not even sure exactly how this would have happened because it's not like she had Sunday school to go to, somehow she knows the laws and knows how to call out the laws even better than half of Israel, apparently, at least based on the book of Judges. She learns what it means to worship Yahweh and what it means to follow his laws. She learned enough to kind of meld two different laws here. Again, we'll see that next, next week. But, but, but she, she, she brings these laws together and then she comes to Boaz and says, Boaz, I want you to do this. I'm going to hold you to this standard that I've read about. You are a faithful Jew, right? This is what you do. She says, I'm going to be faithful to Yahweh. I'm calling you, Boaz, too, to be faithful. And she does it all at tremendous risk to herself. And her risk-taking and Yahweh trusting have given her an agency and a voice in a society where her voice would not only have been not expected but not welcome but because she trusts in God and because she has this tremendous courage, she has a voice and she has agency. And it's against that backdrop of that patriarchal society that we have Ruth coming in here and doing this, a woman's story of trusting God and risking everything. And it's this woman's story that teaches our hearts today. This is the book of Ruth. And what is it that brings about this fierceness and this courage that Ruth has? It's not because she has this disposition. It's because she has a faith in God that it seems even the Jews have lost. But not this Moabitess. She has a faith in Yahweh. And she's all in with this Yahweh. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Those are not just empty words that she utters to her mother-in-law. She's banking her life that it's true. And she's banking her life that Yahweh will come through for her. She's all in with him and she is going to stand or fall with this Yahweh. Her faithfulness shines against the faithlessness of the judges. So I hope you'll come back next week because we'll get to the final chapter of the book of Ruth and we'll finally see what this whole book is actually about. It's been kind of hidden to us at this point, but we'll see next week what it is all about. But for today, let us, let us learn from the beauty of Ruth and Boaz, a man and a woman who, st- who stood in stark contrast to the world that was all around them whose faith drove them to do things that were, that were risky, whose faith drove them to do things that were costly, whose faith drove them to do things that, 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 that only someone who believed that God is faithful would have them do. Their faith drove them to a beauty and a kindness that we as Christians should embody with our lives today. And so my question for you this morning, my question for you is, do you bring the confidence of Ruth and the kindness of Boaz wherever you go? Do you bring that with you into your conversations with people? Do you bring that with you when you show up at church? Do you bring that with you whenever you, you talk with your spouse? Men, do you bring the kindness of Boaz to your relationship? Women, do you you bring the confidence of Ruth into your marriage? This is not like a condemnation type of thing, saying, well, all right, you need to get better at this. This is simply a recognition that this is what faith produces. It produces a beauty and a kindness that is unmatched in this world. And this is what Ruth and Boaz teach us. And next week, we'll see why Ruth and Boaz can teach it this way. It all comes back to Jesus. But for, day, for today, I just want to ask you that question. Do you bring that kind of kindness and beauty wherever you go? And if not, then my question would be, where is it that you have, where is it that you have lost that part of your faith? Because that is part of our faith. That's part of what makes me so sick whenever I watch so much on my, my, my news feed and I see so many people hung up on the culture wars. So many people hung up on, on fighting this battle and fighting that battle. And don't get me wrong, as Christians, we have a place where we stand and where we're, we contend for the faith. All of that is there and there's, a, there's wisdom in how we do that. But are we bringing beauty to this world? Are we bringing kindness to this world? Do we look like Ruth and Boaz? Or I wonder, do we look more like one of the judges? So that's my challenge to you this morning. Did you see the way that they live and the way that they care and the way that they show kindness and the way that they have confidence and the way that they exercise their faith, that you would do the same. Let's pray. Father, this morning we celebrate the beauty that we see before us. We don't dismiss it, we don't just run right by it, we don't get caught up in some love story as though that is the primary thing to emulate, but instead we see the faith of a woman who should, 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 shouldn't believe in you at all. And we see the kindness of a man who had every right to not show kindness, but instead take it just for himself. Father, I pray that you would teach us how to live like that. How to be people like that. How to be husbands and wives like that. How to be friends like that. How to be fathers. How to be mothers. How to be a people in this world, in this culture that live like that. All rooted in our faith in you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.